Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Nadine Smith, UK Director of the Centre for Public Impact. You can find Nadine on Twitter at Nadine MC Smith. Nadine, welcome. Hello, lovely to see you. Could we start by you telling us a little about the Centre for Public Impact? Really proud of the Centre for Public Impact. We began a um, journey five years ago when we were set up and founded by the Boston Consulting Group as a response to really a demand from leaders across the world that there was an, a lack of conversation and imagination around what governments of the future could be like. And leaders really were feeling like times were changing, that they would call them customers were demanding more of government, that technology was moving rapidly, um, and that the future of government looked uncertain. There was also issues around trust. And all those questions were, were flying around all over the place. And for Boston Consulting Group, they wanted to have the space and freedom to explore those discussions with leaders um, and provide them with the safe spaces to do it. So they set, decided boldly to, to set up CPI as um, a non-profit entity that would sit at arm's length from BCG and have the freedom to think and the freedom to discuss and the freedom to debate and disagree and challenge. And in our time, we have worked with many governments across the world, helping them to answer some of those, those questions. And um, in doing so, really thinking, first of all, about what policy can be in, the, in today's world and then what the role of the public servant is too. And throughout our journey, we've begun looking at the very sort of technocratic side of government, which is the kind of policy making side, the machine, if you like, right to, to today's conversation at CPI, which is very much centred around human government and how governments can really build those important relationships with citizens. I think that's an important journey because it shows that we ourselves, many of us have worked in government, began thinking that the answer to the question how can we reimagine government so that it's more effective for everyone was one about technocratic tweaks and adaptations, more actionable ideas, implementation and delivery. From there to really understanding, actually, when we look into it very deeply, it's a lot more complex than that. Um, and that's what's taken me personally as a leader at CPI on a journey that is much more one of discovery about what it means to be a citizen um, when it comes to the decisions being made about you, for you, by government, and what it means to be a leader of um, a government authority, agency or entity, trying very hard to be on the receiving end of what government is doing. And so it's been an interesting road for CPI. We work all over the world. Uh, we've got teams um, particularly busy in, the North, in North America here in the UK, which is a team that I lead globally, and particularly some really interesting work now um, happening and, and the team growing in Australia as well. So you recently produced a report that claims government must be more human or risk becoming irrelevant. Can you explain why you say that? When I wrote that, that was um, the time when we were discovering what legitimacy meant. And Again, related to the journey that CPI has been on in understanding what being an effective government looks like, 
we quickly discovered that there were sort of three key elements to effective policy. One was um, legitimacy, one was policy, obviously, and then the other was action, the sort of delivery and implementation side. But the legitimacy part of the triangle that was legitimacy, policy and action, and through which we have, an have analysed hundreds of case studies, we found time and again that legitimacy was the hardest conversation to have back with people, to ask them what, how did they build that all-important reservoir of support how did they build those relationships? How did they really know that their ideas were reaching the people that needed to be reached? And I think that that led me on a bit of another journey, which was to sort of talk to people all over the world, as, much, as many people as I could from all walks of life, from communities that were potentially unheard, unvalued, and talking to leaders in government as well as practitioners to ask them, well, what is legitimacy then? If it's such a hard conversation to have and if it's really a difficult word to bring into government um, and yet it's essential parts of government, how can we do better on that? And during that journey, probably it's probably where I got my biggest wake-up call. As somebody who was once a civil servant myself, I realised that the level of mistrust anxiety and sometimes just sort of antipathy really was really quite staggering particularly among young people who I felt or I could hear were drifting away from the idea that government could be any help to them whatsoever right through to public servants that were there in their, in their lives every day social workers teachers and MPs those people for young people were becoming increasingly irrelevant. And the reason they were becoming increasingly irrelevant was because they were not in any way relatable. They were not available. They didn't come to where young people wanted them to be. They were often seen to be driven by purely party political motives. And the result of that was that, was that young people were asking what the point of voting was. And it was destroying their relationship with the police, even in local communities. And it was destroying their idea that government could be a force for good. And it was one that they could participate in. And I felt that that was an important message back to government, that you risk becoming irrelevant. And it's not just for marginalised, left behind groups, as one likes to call them. It was for pretty much everyone who'd been through anything like a trauma. And that could be a broken relationship at home, a situation at school, right through to having experienced losing a business, having experienced earthquakes um, or other such environmental shocks, as we heard from people in Mexico who felt that their really, government really didn't care. There wasn't much kindness that they could point towards. And there wasn't much in the way of inspirational leadership either. And I think what we're seeing all over the world is people saying, young and old, if we want to see change, we'll do it ourselves in our own way. And we will not go through the lawful proper processes of government. It sounds like you would agree as I do with Michael Gove in his Ditchley speech on 27th of June when he said, 
There is a deep disenchantment on the part of many of our citizens with a political system that they feel has failed them. So he's right. <laughs> so people feel that when they suffer a trauma, as you say, a pandemic or flooding or redundancy, the government just isn't there for them. How then does a government go about becoming more human? How can the UK, for example, make the transition from its current politics where many people feel they are being pitched against each other so that an elite can stay in power, to one where communities feel more seen and heard? So it's wonderful that the Ditchley speech recognised quite clearly the diagnosis of, of the problem was absolutely spot on and I, you know, I was really delighted to hear the conversation um, moving towards one that was about being more connected and understanding that government just doesn't understand and, and is, is operating in its own bubble, really. And, you know, I recognise that fully as a former civil servant and many civil servants do. To become more human, though, I think it might be interesting to see whether or not government really does mean that. Because to become more human is not going to be let's just tweak the engagement process here, let's move some civil servants across the country there. If the culture of the civil service remains the same, if the mindset of the civil service remains the same, whereby they're thinking top down, then I don't think it will make much difference. We do have civil servants based across the country doing various things. I myself worked for HMRC years ago, um, where we had revenue and customs offices all over the country. But it didn't make much difference whether I was meeting them in Cornwall or London or Scotland. They were still um, operating in a very tightly command and controlled environment and reporting back to government on what success is looking like using a very narrow definition of the term success that had been defined by a few people back in Whitehall. So if HQ is always going to be Whitehall with the same mentality, I don't think putting some people across the country will make much difference. What I do think could make a difference is a very different way of thinking about what regions and localities can bring to um, our country. I think COVID has shone a light on the importance of understanding that we are a number of different places across the UK. And the Leicester lockdown is showing us that, really. So giving places a sense of value and self-worth and being able to determine their futures, yes, alongside civil servants, yes, enabled by civil servants. And goodness me, I mean, I'm not the one, I'm not going to sort of talk to you today and say there's no role for central government. I think central governments can play an incredibly important role in coordinating enabling and connecting and when CPI looked at around the world for examples of how places um, and countries have recovered from really drastic economic shocks that we experienced earlier this century we found a very common theme to that recovery was understanding and valuing local places connecting them up with one another and also to opportunities across the country and the rest of the world and the ideas for recovery came from people directly in those places. They weren't just asked what they wanted. They were also instrumental in playing a part in the recovery too. This was the, say, this was the case in um, Sweden. This was the case in West Philadelphia. Um, it's even been the case in the Highlands of Scotland, 
where there's been really interesting initiatives to bring people together for them to shape their futures and to help unlock the resources locally and regionally to be able to enable those ideas to happen and then to be able to market their ideas to the rest of the world to attract people to their place to increase the likelihood of investment Um, and that's where central government can play a real role as well so I know it's easy for me to talk about things like well central government needs to have more be more empathetic and empathy is a really important part of being a more human government but it's I think if I'm going to talk very practically then we would be talking about central government sitting back a little more understanding that they don't know best trusting that really good ideas can come from places and people and that when the ideas come they come that my goodness they do they come and to what we do need is central government to make listening and acting a part of everyday life a normal part of the culture of life to and for those ideas to connect back to central government and for central government to then play that coordinating and enabling role that steward if you like is a really is a really important role that that is a practical role that will make them feel more human and then there's obviously obvious things such as the way that government seems to deprioritize its own diversity and inclusion agenda. It's really depressing to see such a lack of diversity and inclusion at the very top of civil service. I think government would say they probably have one of the most inclusive cabinets ever, but there still is not a black member of the cabinet. And then I think one final thing that, sorry, that Michael Gove did say um, was that he mentioned, he talked about the importance of data. He talked about the importance of having people that can really understand that data and play it back into the system to make better decisions. Of course, data is important, but I do worry about whether or not we're throwing away the soft skills that are also needed in government. We're not talking about the importance of kindness and and caring and being able to give public servants right throughout the system the time that they need um, and the trust that they need to build the relationships they need to trust with people. What is the point of data without relationships? In episode 21 of this podcast, we heard from Donna Hall, Chief Executive of Wigan at the time of the Wigan deal. Similar initiatives are now proceeding in Gateshead, Cambridge, Barking and Dagenham and elsewhere. Is that a model that you would endorse? Absolutely. Donna Hall has been an incredible ray of sunshine for the Centre for Public Impact. Um, we featured her ourselves. What she has done for Wigan is not only inspirational to the world, and it's interesting because I recently gave a TEDx speech where I talked about Wigan and said, isn't it interesting that this place called Wigan that you may not have ever heard of across the world is now a place where we're being asked we're being asked about Wigan all the time. People want to know what happened there and what can be learned. So I think it's a fascinating story. How far can those stories go? I, I worry because I think ultimately, if you could model that kind of leadership and approach across the country, that would be absolutely amazing. But at the moment, we're talking to a public that is exhausted, that is worried, for whom life is now completely unrecognisable from what it was. There's a lot of healing that needs to come. And I talk about healing a lot in my job. And I know that Boris Johnson has talked about healing the nation. 
So, and, and I do think we need to hear a bit more about what healing places looks like. Partly, of course, it's going to be about giving people some really tough choices and offering people the chance to make those tough choices together about how money can be spent on what and how you want to shape your place. And really handing that power over to the public is something I think the public wants. But we'll need to help them because we're just at the moment in the middle of a discovery phase of listening to people who've been massively impacted in the north of England from um, the, the COVID from COVID nineteen, whose lives have been turned around and were already difficult in the beginning. And what we're looking at now is a vast number of people, not marginalised, not just left behind, not just homeless people, but most people feeling as if they need some kind of healing process from COVID and Black Lives Matter. So I do think that that's where national government can help in us to try helping to reimagine what the transition phase could look like. And yes, it will be more conversations. Yes, it will be more listening and it could even be participatory budgeting. But at the moment, all I'm hearing is that people are, very, are just about coping, are really, really struggling. And we really need to get those services absolutely right at the moment. And, and we need to ensure that we've got those rapid feedback loops from what people are experiencing to services and services can adapt really quickly without having to ask permission back to central government about whether they can adapt quickly because of course by the time they do the situation has changed so there's a lot of intricate complexity around building those relationships with people and and building on the great things that have come through COVID-19 some wonderful strengthening of relationships between services and people has happened the worry from for example social workers is that the great relationships that they have managed to build in this time where they were trusted to get on and do the right thing will be lost and that we'll be back to where we were before. You've spoken a lot about listening, but the general public, I believe, has a degree of cynicism about listening when follow-up action is not taken. Progress has been made on less than a quarter of the recommendations of the 2013 Social Mobility Commission, and despite widespread public opposition, the PM is pressing ahead with HS2, which on account of the behavioural changes that are occurring, will almost certainly be a white elephant when it's complete. I do think that having more reviews and not seeing them implemented is, is a very, very serious symptom of a, a government that I think has been preoccupied with obviously Brexit and COVID. There are two things that they've had to deal with. In terms of social mobility, I myself worked on the first social mobility paper with Alan Milburn. And it's really disappointing how few of the recommendations have been taken forward. But I do wonder whether or not sometimes the conversations about social mobility, social exclusion, are seen in isolation to to the, to the bigger picture. I think it's often seen as a something that can be just put to one side while the big stuff gets done. And I think that we maybe have failed to make the connection strongly enough between the fact that the economy as a whole suffers when a small group of people suffer. That stability of our country is at risk 
that the legitimacy of government is in question when a group of people time and again fail to succeed through no fault of their own it affects every single person and I think that what we're seeing now many of the problems we're seeing is a result of a lot of the inactivity around those really really important issues and I don't know what will make government prioritize this except for the fact that I think the public are calling for it now I think Many people are now experiencing what poverty feels like. Many people are now experiencing the fact that they won't be able to afford to send their children to university, um, having had dreams of doing so. I think so many people across the country have been teetering on the edge of catastrophe over the past few months and will to come. That this may be, this, this talk of mobility and inclusion will become part of the mainstream conversation because I think that for a long time it's been somewhat separate. And those people that have had the authority in Whitehall to talk about those things have also been somewhat sidelined from the conversations about the stuff that the big boys like to talk about, which is economic recovery and you know GDP. And I just think the connection just hasn't been made clearly enough. Perhaps these two major issues that our country has been through, Brexit and COVID will finally show government that these are not niche, nice to solve if we've got time issues. They're impacting on everybody. And I would have thought that a government that knows how many votes were lent to it, um, and it also has an agenda of its own about levelling up and being united, I do see a lot of discussion about it. I haven't yet seen the action but my worry is that since COVID has happened, it happened, a whole new round of really understanding needs to happen because at CPI, everything we thought we knew about what people wanted to do and how they wanted to be listened to and what kind of participation they wanted to be involved with, we've had to cast aside. We're, li- we're starting again in some respects. So you're consulting with people on the ground and writing reports. What else is the CPI doing to make government more human? Yeah, we don't actually write many reports. We're not a think tank, so we're not going out and listening and then writing reports and recommendations very often. We write longer think pieces for sure, and we do like to stimulate debate. And uh, and what CPI is there to do is ultimately we're there to help prepare leaders for this future that is right now, right here, helping their organisations to adapt quickly to what is happening, helping them to build the know-how, the confidence and the relationships across the complex systems that they're running and to help them to not just listen, there's no point just listening, but being able to um, have the confidence to act on what they hear. Because the worst thing I think, as you've pointed out, is to listen and then not do anything. And the reason why governments often remain paralysed, back to your previous question, is because what they hear needs to be done is too big, too much, too surprising. They haven't prepared the system for what might come through listening and consultation. So at CPI, we talk a great deal about building the confidence to act in the system, understanding what being a systems leader is, which is something I know that Donna Hall um, would have spoken to you about, and really being able to create a learning environment for life. Our organisations that are local government and national government departments and agencies need to move from a mentality of getting on and doing things and then creating very narrow sets of uh, performance measures, which pleases the funder, which is central government, 
to one which is demonstrating more clearly how people's lives have really changed. And this is something that Michael Gove did talk about. You know, how has all of that money really changed anything? And if you're going to keep giving people the same performance targets and measures and KPIs and keep demanding the same sets of data off them, you're going to get the same answers. So I think that ultimately what CPI is trying to do is educate leaders right up and down the system to connect them to one another. So there's a better understanding of what's needed to really be able to say, we have changed that person's life. And that's going to mean government letting go a bit. Can you tell us what specific mechanisms you're using to educate leaders? So we're really, really pleased to have at the Centre for Public Impact, Professor Toby Lowe from Newcastle. Um, and his work around the human learning system, which is a, a really interesting and evolving mechanism, if you like, for thinking about how organisations can govern and operate in these times, offers us a kind of what he would say is a, a new paradigm for government, one that, that is moving us well and truly on from the days of new models of public management, where running government like a business made sense. With his human learning systems approach, which is about helping organisations to become more open and transparent, listening and learning and adapting all the time through um, much more connected systems. Connecting that thinking with the work that I've done on legitimacy around listening, trust, relationships with the public and building those mechanisms around deliberative democracy. We are also educating local governments on all of the new methods that you can use to reach people. And of course, you're always going to need that face to face. That will never, ever not be the case. But increasingly, people are unable to leave their home. We need to find other ways of reaching people and finding out. And the first thing we need to ask people all the time is, how are you? How is life feeling for you right now? What do you need? And these are really like these are obvious questions when people are listening to what I'm saying. But often those sort of questions are tick box exercises, because what really we need to do is get a report back to HQ to let people know whether they did or didn't pick up their prescription this week and maybe they did pick up their prescription this week but maybe something else has happened in life that has just sent them to somewhere else that we don't know about we need to get to know people so joining that work that I've been doing with Chaby's work on human learning systems I think we offer governments a really holistic approach to preparing them to be able to operate in a much more highly complex environment so I urge you to take a look at the emerging thinking that we're doing around the social working sector, for example, where we actually worked with 80 plus social workers across the country with an organisation called Frontline. And we asked social workers to reimagine what social working could look like if they had the freedom to design it. And when they did so, they came up with a system that obviously put them much more in the driving seat, was built on a system of trust and freed them up from a lot of the bureaucracy of ticking boxes back to government. But in doing that, it freed up 50% of their time to spend with families, to get to know and spend precious time with families. And throughout COVID-19, some of that blueprint thinking has happened anyway, because it had to. Without anyone implementing the blueprint, it has just happened. And that 50% more time with families has led to incredible stronger relationships and as I said the fear is that that will all be lost so what CPI has got to do now and is doing 
is capturing what has changed in social working, what's worked well during COVID, what didn't work so well, and how can we make sure that we really learn that? And that's what I think CPI does really well. It's capturing live learning, playing it back to the system and helping them to cope with what is is coming back at them as as new demands um, across the whole system too. If you were PM, Nadine, what would your top priority be? I think my top priority would be to really examine the whole culture and mindset that is Whitehall from the performance management systems to the way we regulate and do inspection. Why? Why is government there? What are we for? What is our being? Sounds really nice and and, and fluffy, but I think it's the approach that people like Jacinda Ardern are taking, which I think is working, is what are we here for? How are we helping? What can we do? That kind of openness and humility, which I think was coming through in Michael Gove's speech, which did, which really did hearten me. I think that is an absolute priority over how can we make sure we've got more data beyond data. And when you're analysing and assessing data, with what mindset are you analysing it? And I think if you don't know that, then there's all sorts of harm that can be done with data. Sounds like a good starting point. Why is government here? Can we turn to you now? You've had an impressive career, including five and a half years as chief press officer and then head of strategic media campaigns within the cabinet office. What motivated you to leave the civil service? Well, I spent most of my time, even though I was the spokesperson for the ministers in the cabinet office and the cabinet secretary, and many other jobs before that, I spent around 15 years in different government departments in Whitehall. Every time I entered a job, I tried very hard to get out and tried very hard to get as close as I could to people who were living normal lives. I myself had a difficult upbringing um, and beat the odds to some extent to get where I am. I also come from a mixed race background. Um, I know how it feels to not feel like you belong. And I've experienced racism as well. And when I went into government, in many ways, I was given the most incredible opportunities by the most incredible ministers who really took me under their wing. And I think they saw something. I realised that, you know, I had an ability to to, to play messages back and around Whitehall in, in ways that were, was really helpful and, and help people understand one another. And, and I loved that. So I'm not taking anything away from what working in Whitehall gave me, which was the most incredible experience. I had to leave because I really felt that after a while, all I was doing was serving the machine. We often talk about this machine as if it's all consuming and that we've got no control over it. I completely disagree. Um, I think you can have a huge amount of control over a government machine. But for me, I was operating in a very small bubble in in Whitehall. Um, I was trying to bring the views and opinions of people from really, really deprived communities back into government through the work I was doing on social mobility and social exclusion. And when I was at the Department of Health in public health as well, and I felt increasingly frustrated by the fact that there was only ever a few people that really understood it and really wanted it as much as I did um, to be a priority. And I felt that I needed to get out and try and influence government more from the outside. and, And that's what I did. So I decided the best thing to do was to educate myself more about why change wasn't happening and to discover what I could do personally outside of the confines of the the ministerial uh, circle of influence. 
What do you consider your greatest achievement to date? Personally, I never thought I would be a mother of two children. So I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a mum and that I've managed to juggle work and home for the last 12 and a half years. It hasn't been easy. I think that I've pushed really hard for things like maternity pay and working from home rights, which I'm really proud of. But I think that that work that I'm doing, building CPI, to be an organisation that trusts people, that models the world that we want to live in. We operate in a self-managed structure. So the kind of leader that I am and I've grown to become is one that's empowering and trusting and and all of the things that we say that government should be, we're we're modelling at CPI. And that means that when people come to work for us, they're expecting a line manager to tell them what to do. But we help people to have the confidence to shape their own ideas and to make their ideas helpful and relevant to the world today. And I think people that come and work for us and and then leave um, certainly are telling me that it's an incredible experience. Oh, but can I just say I'm also really proud of the TEDx talk I did recently. That was one of the hardest performances of my entire life. Okay, while we're on the subject, is there any other TEDx talk, podcast or book you'd recommend to our listeners? There is a podcast that I've recently discovered. I'm reading at the moment Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. She also has um, a podcast series that is incredibly insightful, very truthful and very open. And I think that all of us, including me, have a lot to learn still about how we can tackle systemic racism. I've got quite a few books. I've got The Beyond Command and Control by John Seddon and Al, and most people will know that one. I've also got Becoming Michelle Obama, which I'm almost through and have absolutely, it was, I've cried reading that book because there are points in that book where she talks about being a woman, feeling alone, not knowing where you fit in, which just really spoke to me. I'm also, there's a, there's a little mini series of books, which I really like that have been, that have come from the Westminster Abbey Institute, where I'm a fellow, but the Westminster Abbey Institute Um, helps to mentor public servants, particularly civil servants, and allows them to explore what the moral purpose of government is. So I am actually reading a whole series of books related to what the moral purpose of government is that are produced by the Westminster Abbey Institute and edited by Claire Foster Gilbert, What is the Power of Politicians by Tessa Jowell and Francis D'Souza, And then there's The Power of Civil Servants by David Normington and Peter Hennessy. And in fact, lots of the talks that the Westminster Abbey Institute does hold openly to the public with really inspirational people, former prime ministers as well, is a really interesting place to go and just like nourish your mind and um, and find your truth, which I'm always talking about, like get to the truth, find your truth. As you probably know, I've recently written about the importance of truth. I think that at the moment, the whole discussion around how we can recover from the trauma um, that is COVID-19 is also interlinked with how can we build better understanding and rid our country of racism, rid our institutions of racism too, and really build that inclusive, diverse country that we love based on respect um, and truth. And I've been thinking a lot about that, and I hope very much that when we move forward as a country, that we do so looking very hard at how we can discover the truth about our past as a country, 
to come to terms with our present and our future. I do believe that um, it is important that we have a place to end spaces, safe spaces to explore what really happened in our history, not to feel ashamed of it, but to own it and to say that is what happened. A lot of the discussion over the last few weeks in this country has worried me greatly with people being able to spin the past or pretend it didn't happen or even say that is just the past, leave it behind. And a lot of work of CPI talking to people around the world who've been traumatised, there is incredible importance and truth and we can't go very far without it, I'm afraid, is, is, is my conclusion. So you're a busy working mum. What does your self-care regime look like? Well, in fact, in lockdown, I've been particularly uh, paying particular attention to my health. I have um, an autoimmune condition myself. It's called Hashimoto's autoimmune thyroiditis. It's not uncommon, but it basically means that I have an underlying condition that affects the way my body treats its, treats my thyroid. And th- I think I've often kind of put that to one side and tried to just cope with that in everyday life. But I think during lockdown, what I've tried to do is remain really fit and looked after all of my kind of vitamin intake. I'm doing more exercise than I've ever done before. I'm also finding more time to relax in the evenings more than I did now that I'm not going into central London um, and taking the tube. And I really just hope that that continues because I've been able to really focus mentally in lockdown because of that freedom to be able to, um, yeah, look after myself a little bit more, I suppose. And I really need to to continue to do that because I think what it's made me realise is that life as it was before isn't sustainable. And I've been on a journey with that um, condition. It's really under control and I'm really pleased with how I've been doing with it. Finally then, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? I would say to my 20-year-old self that you don't need to be worried that you're different or about your unusual story of getting where you have because it's that story that's going to make you in the end. That story that you hide and bury in trying to fit in and be like everyone else is the story that will, in the end, be your strength. Nadine, thanks so much for sharing some of that story and the work of CPI with us. It's been a privilege speaking to you. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. You can find Compassionate Leadership, the book, on Amazon. And this episode was recorded by Squadcast in Sheffield and South East London. And the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. Mm-hmm.